It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I have never seen anything like it. And I hope to never say anything like it again. Story number one, I just happened by coincidence to tune into Monday Night Football on ESPN last night. I don't usually watch Monday Night Football, but you know, where we are in the season, it was the Buffalo Bills versus the Cincinnati Bengals. I figure one of those two teams is going to the Super Bowl. I always have a soft spot for Buffalo because I went to college there for four years. And so I'm kind of watching with one eye and the Bengals get the ball first and they score a touchdown and then the Bills come back and have to kick a field goal. So it's 7-3 and all of a sudden, all play has stopped. Everybody's milling around. And what was unbelievable is how long this went on and how it completely changed, altered, transformed what had been a you know, potentially very interesting football game into a matter of life and death. You may know by now that a second-year safety, DeMar Hamlin, 24 years old, um, suddenly collapsed on the field after being hit. It, the diagnosis was cardiac arrest. So, you know, look, football's a violent game. We all know that. There's been a lot with concussions and other things. I don't know that the, the, the hit that he took was particularly outrageous, but nevertheless, cardiac arrest. So he's collapsed on the field. Nobody quite knows what to do. ESPN is doing the best that it can, but it didn't really know what to do either. And so kept breaking away to commercial and then coming back and saying, well, we don't know the situation and then breaking away to commercial again. So it was about nine minutes into the game. And he got hit in the chest area. Uh, Hamlin stood up, took two steps, and just collapsed. Now, it wasn't like you could see this very clearly because you had this sort of medium shot of, you know, all the uh, medical people came out. There was an attempt to... All football stadiums, I guess, these days have ambulances. So the ambulance came out, but the question is, how could you get him in the ambulance without making him worse? And, you know, the tone of everything was just like, okay, this is about a million times more important than even the best football game. This guy could die at any moment. Nobody knew. And I, when you hear this podcast, it may have been resolved one way or another. Fortunately, I guess... Um, somebody was able to, you know, get an IV into Hamlin. He was put on a stretcher. He was able to get into the ambulance. He was taken to the hospital in Cincinnati. The fans had just been quiet. I mean, here are the Cincinnati fans ready to just go nuts over this game. And they cheered when the ambulance was able to drive off the field. And there was tremendous confusion because... The people who run the National Football League weren't really saying much about what was happening. And that didn't leave the ESPN teams much to say either. 
I mean, as this went on, it ended up going on for more than an hour. Some of the commentators were saying, look, we knew there had been a meeting, a brief meeting between the two head coaches and somebody from the league. And it just seemed like it would be inhumane and almost unthinkable to resume the game. You know, ordinarily somebody gets hit, concussion even, you get, you get taken off the field. There's a five-minute delay, everybody cheers, and the game goes on. But this was something very different. And as time went on, and the NFL did a horrible job of communicating on this, and I'm thinking, where's Roger Goodell, and can he make a decision about this? Because ESPN couldn't exactly break away. The game might have resumed, but you had Joe Buck doing the play-by-play. And I know Joe Buck, and he's a real straight shooter. And they increasingly began to say that, how could you possibly resume this football game? How could anybody's head be into it? How could certainly the Buffalo Bills come back and and start, you know, tackling people and and so forth? It was just went on and on and on. So now we learn that the league was never really considering resuming the game. But that was not clear during the coverage. It wasn't about proceeding with the game, said Troy Vincent executive VP at the NFL. The competitive aspect never crossed my mind, never crossed our minds. But here's Joe Buck, you know, and and to all of their credit, they kept saying, we don't know, we don't have much information, we not much we can say. Um, somebody had told ESPN that in about five minutes, the game was going to resume. That's the word we get from the league, said Joe Buck the word we get from down on the field, but nobody's moving. And, you know, it's an interesting sidelight here is that, you know, like a lot of casual football fans, I was not familiar with Hamlin, but he has a charitable foundation uh, to uh, kind of a crowdfunding site to provide kids with toys. Within just hours of his being hospitalized, that toy drive had raised more than $3 million. Now, of course, this comes on the heels of, uh, I guess it was just last Sunday, Indianapolis Colts quarterback Nick Foles leaving a game after being sacked by the Giants linebacker who celebrated the hit as Foles appeared to convulse on the field. Foles was carted off but listed with rib injuries. Remember back uh, at the end of September, the Miami Dolphins QB? Tua Tagovailoa transported to the hospital after slamming his head against the turf in a game that happened to be against the Cincinnati Bengals and was diagnosed with a concussion. I mean, all of this is coming to the fore. Now, as a journalist, I'm interested in what do you do? Because they went to commercial twice. They come back. There's an ambulance on the field. Everybody's saying we don't know anything. Um, the Bills quarterback, Josh Allen, appeared on the screen with his face in his hands. And Joe Buck said, there's just nothing to say. In other words, we have no new information. We don't want to speculate. 
and we can sit here and keep saying the same thing over and over again. So then they would go back to the um, ESPN crew in New York, the, the one that does the sort of pre and post game shows and so forth. And they would say similar things. You can't see this game continuing. There are things in life that are more important uh, than football. And the players were so tightly surrounding Hamlin that you couldn't really see him. And I don't know if that was by design or not, but as Joe Buck said, maybe that's for the best. Then there was another um, pause in the action. And again, Joe Buck said, there's nothing more to say at this point. He was not going to be drawn into, well, let's have a long speculative chat fest about this. So fortunately, as I'm behind the mic now, although Hamlin is in critical condition, I mean, I think like everyone did the right thing except for the complete lack of communication by the NFL, which seemed kind of heartless. It either seemed that somebody couldn't make a decision or that they were actively considering resuming the game as if, you know, it was just another routine injury, neither of which was true. Uh, Speaking of sports as long as we've got your attention here on that. Martina Navratilova. We've just learned yesterday a story on Tennis.com. She is battling both throat cancer and breast cancer. And, you know, this is one of the all-time greats. 18-time Grand Slam singles winner. She's 66 years old. The doctors discovered the unrelated breast cancer while they were diagnosing her stage one throat cancer. And she said, look, this double whammy is serious, but still fixable. I'm hoping for a favorable outcome. It's going to stink for a while, but I'll fight it with all I've got. She said, I was healthy and I didn't really have anything to worry about. Uh, And then once you get the diagnosis, she says, everything shifts. You realize your life can change in a nanosecond. So that seize the day thing definitely applies. I'm always good about dealing with reality and getting on with it, not worrying about too many possibilities. This is where tennis training comes in handy. You need to deal with the ball. The ball is right here. You don't think about anything else. Being a top-level athlete, a pro athlete, you learn to be positive. So that came in very handy as a patient. Being a positive person helped a lot, and surround yourself with positive people as well. So good luck to Martina in battling both of these uh, insidious diseases. Number two, yeah, I'll get to Kevin McCarthy in a minute. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. Number two, you know, more um, the final depositions have been dribbling out final text messages and so forth from the January 6th committee, which basically goes out of business today as the Republicans take over the House of Representatives. And I read you last week a couple of uh, tidbits, maybe it was yesterday, about Hope Hicks, you know, who I always think of as she was like the second or third employee of the Donald Trump presidential campaign. When I met her, it was her and Corey Lewandowski and maybe, you know, one body man. And that's all the campaign was. And that was at a time when people weren't taking the campaign seriously and so forth. And she always seemed, even after she left the White House and then came back, she always seemed to be, you know, the person who was the most uh, 
could most easily talk to Trump as a confidant, despite her relatively young age. And yet here are these texts that came out, as reported by The Hill. So Hope Hicks is texting a woman named Julie Radford, who is Ivanka's chief of staff, right after the Capitol riot. And Hope Hicks writes, All of us that didn't have jobs lined up will be perpetually unemployed. I'm so mad and upset. We all look like domestic terrorists now. Like one day you feel like, you know, I'm a former White House official. I'll just go out and get any good job I want. And the next day, what's most identified with the presidency of Donald Trump? It's what happened on January 6, 2021. And hope wasn't done. She said, this made us all unemployable, like untouchable. God, I'm so effing mad. And there's a little bit of an exchange about Alyssa Farah Griffin, who was a colleague, mostly working for Mike Pence, in that White House, now a co-host on The View, and she had resigned right after January 6th. Alyssa looks like a genius, Hope wrote. Her most recent post, said Radford, and leaving, Hope Hicks said. Uh, you know, I'm not asking anybody to uh, necessarily feel a lot of sympathy. You can say, well, they all chose to work for Donald Trump. But, you know, who, even the people who have the lowest opinion of Donald Trump, who among us really saw or could foresee, despite the warnings, despite the, you know, come to Washington, it'll be wild and all that, you know, the kind of violence that broke out, uh, during the takeover at the Capitol. All right, I'm going to move to story number three now, knowing full well there's just so many things that are up in the air as we speak. You know, it's almost like at the end of 2022, there was a sudden rush to get in under the deadline. And I don't mean to make light of it, but I've talked a lot, both on the air at Fox and on this podcast, about... Barbara Walters, who died, you know, the day before the last day of the year, and also Polk Benedict, and how he was a hero to Catholic conservatives. Even though he was largely inactive in his last decade, lived in a cottage near Pope Francis, and nonetheless, you know, Pope Francis is too liberal for a lot of the conservatives in the Catholic church. And so they felt like they lost the champion, even though, as I say, it wasn't like he was speaking out or making a lot of news. And I've told you what I think about Barbara and her remarkable career and how she changed the face of television. I know a lot of people pass away and you say that, but here it's really true. And I think I've shown you how it's true. But now we get to Kevin McCarthy. And it may well be that by This afternoon on January 3rd, he has got the vote somehow to become Speaker of the House. And all this other stuff is forgotten because who cares? It's all inside baseball Republican maneuvering. But I keep reading these stories, including this morning. Well, McCarthy's still scrambling. Well, McCarthy's trying to put together. Well, you know, he still doesn't have the votes. Remember talking to the House Republican leader couple weeks ago, just he happened to be at Fox and we were chatting. 
And he said to me, and I don't think this is any different than what he's kind of saying publicly, he says, if not me, who? Who's the person who's going to lead the Republican Party in the House of Representatives if it's not me, somebody who's been a member of the leadership for years, has all these relationships? And then you get down to what it is that the people who are trying to stop McCarthy are trying to accomplish. Because on the one hand, you know, often you have these leadership fights and there's a second candidate and the people who want the second candidate, for example, there's been a lot of talk about if McCarthy doesn't make it on the first ballot, maybe he can never make it. And maybe his deputy, Steve Scalise, will become the speaker. But every time it seems like they're putting something together, it kind of falls apart. So I'm reading stories yesterday and last night and then again this morning. Well, he's having a meeting and then he's going to talk to the caucus and the voting will begin at noon. And I think what's most noteworthy here, whether McCarthy himself becomes uh, speaker or not, and just to give you a sense of the historical moment, uh, if he doesn't win on the first ballot, be the first time that any leader, because he is the leader now, has lost a first-round vote in a century, in a hundred years. Uh, one senior GOP aide telling the Washington Post, two trains are going 100 miles an hour, and everyone's wondering, which one will survive? But my point is that the people running against him, like Andy Biggs, as the leader of the conservative movement that does not want Kevin McCarthy to become speaker. Uh, so is Matt Gates, And he, every people keep coming up to him. He keeps saying, I'm a no, I'm a no, I'm a no. Sorry, I haven't changed my mind. I'm still a no. But you get the impression that they want to throw their weight around. But what is it they want in return? I mean, Mike Murphy, the uh, longtime Republican consultant and a savvy fellow in his own right, says that McCarthy's being asked to agree to the ejector seat plan, meaning he gives his critics, his opponents, the right to press a button, and he's out of there at any moment. I mean, in, in the terms of what he actually agreed to. And by the way, you know, whatever you think of Kevin McCarthy, whether you think he shouldn't have gone to Mar-a-Lago after January 6th, and kind of made up with Donald Trump, and that was a mistake. It, you know, that was the, the hand he chose to play. And Donald Trump, you know, the most influential figure still in the Republican Party, has been making calls on Kevin McCarthy's behalf, and he can't get this thing unstuck. But this notion that, okay, we'll give you the job, but we'll keep a close eye on you, and any five of us at any time can call a vote of no confidence and you're and if you lose, you're out of there. So it, it's not really clear what is it that they want. They've made certain asks. McCarthy goes along, and then there's still nowhere. It, it's also murky. Um so in in you know, in, in these situations, you make last-minute concessions. And Here's Kevin McCarthy saying, you know, I'll work with everybody in our party to build up a conservative consensus. Um, he may still have some tricks up his sleeve. Um, but one Republican lawmaker, you know, no one wants to go on the record since he might well be the next speaker, says, to use his words, if they're playing a game of chicken, he's ripped the steering wheel out of the dashboard 
and he's got his foot to the floor. So the Freedom Caucus, which I guess is the center of the conservative opposition, they consider McCarthy to be, you know, he's part of the establishment. He's like Mitch McConnell. He's the reason we vote on all these bills the last minute and nobody knows what's in them. He's the swamp creature. Despite the fact that Donald Trump has absolutely endorsed Kevin McCarthy, but can't get him there, at least as it seems at this particular moment. So, what else has McCarthy done? I mean, it's almost like the worst thing that could happen is that he gets the job and then he's a figurehead. You know, he has no power. He can't really do anything. If he tries to lead, they'll just hit the ejector button. So, in addition to the concession about, okay, you can, you can call my bluff at any time, uh, also, some of these members of the Freedom Caucus, they want choice subcommittee assignments as chairman. Okay, I mean, that's a typical Capitol Hill pork situation, right? Um, you give me something I want, and I'll give you your vote. But you got to remember that John Boehner was, in effect, ousted as Speaker. That's now 2023, 2015. It's now just about eight years ago. Paul Ryan didn't want to come back. And what is it that the conservative members are trying to accomplish? Is it just to throw their weight around and show that they can have enough clout to block the guy who's the obvious next speaker in a normal environment, except this isn't a normal environment. Newt Gingrich, who knows a thing or two about wielding power in the House of Representatives, was on Fox and Friends yesterday. He said, this is a fight between a handful of people and the entire rest of the conference. And they're saying they have the right to screw up everything. Well, the precedent that sets is, so do the moderates. So do the members from Florida. I mean, any five people can get up and say, I'm going to screw up the conference too. The choice is Kevin McCarthy or chaos. And Newt went on. He said, this is remarkably short-sighted and, candidly, selfish position. I don't understand where they're coming from. It's about the right of any five members to basically throw away the entire rest of the conference and tell the rest of the conference it doesn't matter. So Griff Jenkins, uh, my pal who was uh, co-hosting, said, why would they do that, Newt? It makes absolutely no sense. And Gingrich said, I think it's a psychological problem. These guys can't count straight. They can't play tic-tac-toe. They can't accept victory. And that's pretty strong language coming from the former Speaker of the House and former presidential candidate. Um... To say that, look, you're selfish, you don't care about everybody else, you haven't got the votes to put your own person in, but you just want to stop the other guy. And you want to so weaken the institution that nobody could do this job. And that has kind of been the situation that Republicans have found themselves in in recent years. Somehow you don't find Nancy Pelosi in this situation. Obviously, she's given up her leadership position. But she always found a way to, you know give enough members what they wanted as if she could get her way, whether it was on a, be- a piece of legislation like the Obamacare or just, you know, keeping herself in power for four more years, which she did. So 
I can't handicap this. I've tried 27 different ways to say, well, if this happens, then this happens. And then Scalise throws his hat in, but Kevin still wants to do it. And meanwhile, they don't have an alternative. I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. Uh, being an all-seeing, all-knowing uh, pundit doesn't, isn't very useful in situations like this because it's so far out of the usual situation, the normal situation, where <clears throat> you have two, maybe three candidates, and one, one of them wins and two of them lose, and then they all mend fences, and maybe the second-place finisher gets, uh, you know, uh, consolation prize of being the whip or something like that. But I'll have more to say about it tomorrow when either this will all have been resolved and everybody will forget about it in a day or two because it's such inside congressional baseball, or it'll still be going on. <laughs> I really don't know. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. All right, number four. Here's a piece in The Atlantic about Kirsten Cinema, who, as you all recall, got a huge amount of attention for simply saying she doesn't consider herself a Democrat anymore. She doesn't want to face a Democratic opponent in Arizona when she's up for re-election, but she will caucus with the Democrats, which, in my view, is not really that big a deal. But it came during a slow period, and she always has been somebody who... Uh, drives a lot of Democrats nuts, drives a lot of media liberals nuts. But here's the piece that says it's actually a good thing that she changed to being an independent because it makes Congress more representative of America. The Atlantic says that, you know, there are a lot of independents in the country. And yet there are only two other independents in Congress. The Senate had just two others, I should say. Bernie Sanders, who's been an independent forever until you decided to try to win the Democratic nomination twice. And Angus King of Maine. They both caucus with the Democrats, so you don't hear that much about it. The 117th House of Representatives had no independence, and neither will the 118th. Um, and the reason this is noteworthy is that, you know, obviously it gives Kirsten Sinema a little more room to maneuver. By the way, um, Lisa Murkowski is also an independent because she lost the Republican bid for re-election in Alaska, and yet she got herself re-elected. Anyway, uh, what the Atlantic story says is that rather than being shocked that Cinema, who belonged to the Green Party before the Democratic Party, is changing her affiliation again, journalists and political scientists should probe why so few politicians follow her example. Um, goes on to say that Author Connor Friesendorf says, I can't help but suspect that the dearth of independence is contributing to a loss of faith in Congress as a representative democratic institution. Connor writes, uh, I know I'm not alone in disliking how Democrats have used their control of the White House and Congress, but also wishing I had somewhere to turn other than the Republican Party. During the Trump administration, I was eager to NGOP rule, but wished I had an alternative to the Democrats. Although three independents who all caucus with the Dems may not be enough of a change to make Congress more popular or less dysfunctional, 10 independent senators would wield real clout as a swing block. Now, I don't see that happening, but on the other hand, it is interesting. I mean, usually you want to be part of a political party because there's only one party that's going to ultimately control. And if you want to become a committee chairman or a subcommittee chairman 
or you need help with your fundraising or all this other stuff, you want the benefit of being backed by a political party. However, as the era, particularly on the GOP side of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and others has shown, you can instantly now become famous, build your own social media base, and be a national celebrity as well as a lawmaker, whether you've got a D or an R next to your name or not. Look at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She is not the most influential Democrat in the House, but she's certainly one of the most famous. And I think at a certain point, you know, there was a time early in her first year where she was, you know, like joining a sit-in outside of Pelosi's office. And now I think she's decided that she'll have more to accomplish working with the leadership. However, it's not going to accomplish anything because the Republicans will control the House. So I don't know, just everything just seems up in the air, whether it's Kevin McCarthy's effort to, I was going to say run a tight ship, but run any ship at all, or um, Kirsten Sinema doing what she and Joe Manchin did so well, even though they were both nominal Democrats, which is, hold out for the most conservative Democrat position they could and constantly disappoint their party, no longer Cinema's party, when it comes to not going along with uh, abolishing the filibuster or pushing through a Voting Rights Act or anything that you know the party thinks is so important, but they could never get to the 50 votes. Well, now they've got 51 votes, which changes the equation somewhat. All right, number five. I saved Elon Musk for the end because there's a piece here in Politico that talks about, even though he's having lots of problems right now, just keeping, talk about the ship of state, keeping the engines running on the SSS Twitter, that he really wants to push this thing called the X app. Isn't one of his kids named X or it's X something? Anyway, the X app is a kind of a takeoff on the Chinese super app known as WeChat which, given the huge population of China, more than a billion people use this. Not just for messaging, but also for payments, shopping, uh, ride shares, gaming, news. I mean, it's got everything, which maybe you can only do in a totalitarian society. I don't know. As Political points out, building a super app is far more complicated challenge than just Twitter. Far more points of conflict with regulators in D.C., in California, in Brussels, because you've got the E.U., There's nothing like it in the West. If Musk tried to launch it, says Politico, he'd be doing it in a moment when regulators and politicians are increasingly worried about big tech's appetite for data, its impact on consumer lives, and ability to sort of gather up these monopolies. And with Musk's own forays into highly political tweets, such as prosecute Fauci and all that, I wouldn't say that he is riding high in terms of public confidence, you know, is he going to be a guy who is going to build this super app and control everybody's data? Should any one person, even the first or second richest man in the world, have that kind of power? So when Musk was originally going to buy Twitter, he went to investors. He needed to get some other money beyond his own and beyond his Tesla stock and so forth. And he said, look, if we get into digital payments, we could generate as much as $1.8 billion in just five years. And he still wants to do that. He wants to have Twitter be a center for payments for both currency and crypto. Well, the crypto market not looking all that 
great after the indictment of and collapse of FTX, indictment of Sam Bankman-Fried. So I don't know if that's still viable or not. Um, but he has this he has this vision. And look, Musk has a lot of visions. And sometimes they come true and sometimes they don't come true. But he is, after all, the guy who you know built Tesla into this incredibly wealthy um, car company that changed the playing field when it came to, and he was a hero to liberals then. But anyway, he wants you to be able to get a high-yield money market account or a debit card or a check through Twitter. He's already filed for some paperwork on processing payments. It's interesting to note that Mark Zuckerberg tried the same thing to launch his own digital currency called Libra and failed. And then they changed the name to something else and it's still a failure. So it's not like rich guys who own these social media companies haven't thought of this before. It's just friggin' hard to do. In China, this is interesting, you, people can look up doctors, book them, conduct a telehealth appointment, even manage their medical records without leaving the WeChat app. But in the U.S., you run into all kinds of privacy rules and healthcare rules and health insurance rules. So I don't know. It all seems kind of far-fetched to me at the moment. Doesn't mean Musk won't try. He does, however, have a medical venture that you don't hear that much about. It's called Neuralink. It's a brain-computer interface that allows a person to navigate a computer directly from his or her brain with an implantable device. Okay. So, obviously, that would help people who are disabled physically. Uh, it would also, you know, would this become so commonplace that it wouldn't even be noteworthy to say, oh, yeah, I got my chip implanted, and now I just don't even have to open up the keyboard. I can just tell it what to do. But on a much more down-to-earth note, Twitter is being sued by its landlord for not paying the rent. There had, this had earlier been reported, but now there's an actual lawsuit. Twitter, the company, owns $136,000 after not paying the rent on its San Francisco headquarters. Twitter's also closed its Seattle offices. It's been cutting janitorial and security services. People have to bring their own toilet paper to work. Uh, not exactly what you would expect for a guy who paid $44 billion, but on the other hand, he's got to cut costs. doesn't cut costs. You can forget about it. So even in the San Francisco building where he's not paying the rent, he's condensed the amount of space that Twitter is using from four floors to two floors. So I don't know. Why is it always the same thing came up with George Sor or Santos? Uh, accused of, uh, it was evicted twice from Queens Apartments for not paying the rent. I guess the rent is the one thing you can get away with because it's hard for people to evict you, landlord and tenant laws and all of that. But I remain fascinated by what Musk is doing. I think he's had some missteps. I think he should pay the rent. I don't know about this X app. I like my privacy as much as anybody else. But with that, we have come to the end of the second BuzzMeter podcast of 2023. And once again, I appreciate your time, your interest. That's what makes this fun to do. Uh, despite the fact that, you know, I record it and then it gets overtaken by events. But, you know, think about newspapers. 
We used to publish once a day. I mean, it'd be most papers I worked for had three or four editions. And sometimes you'd get the morning paper and it would be completely and totally dated by some huge thing that had happened overnight. Now I could just go on, oh, I don't know, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, X, <laughs> and try to update you. One thing I can assure you of, we'll be back here tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.